My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you could find writing about video games at comicbook.com. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we have been on the pod. Kate and I are busy, as I'm sure you are as well. With that being the case, I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving and it's a well-earned rest and relaxation over the weekend because we have a long weekend. Uh, we finally have some time to pod. There's been a lot going on in the entertainment world the last few weeks. The strike ended, new movies have come out, new castings have been announced. So we're just going to have a general kind of casual conversation about all the things that have gone down in the last few weeks. Kate, I want to start with, hmm, I don't know, where would you like to start, Kate? Out of the topics we've already picked out? Yeah. I would say probably Pedro Pascal. Yeah, same. Okay, so Pedro Pascal is in talks, have signed a deal, all sorts of uh, Hollywood speak for he's signed on. Not uh, that that he hasn't quite crossed the T's and dotted the I's yet, but the ink is wet, Um, to put it one way. And I'm fascinated by this casting because i think it makes perfect sense both in a good way and bad way i feel like it makes perfect sense because he is probably one of the most if not famous well-liked a-list stars that there is um he's got the look he's in the right age we know that he has the sort of depth of performance to both portray like complicated emotions i'm not saying that that's something that that the mcu is known for but we know that pascal can do it and if you consider the fact that the fantastic four will likely be one of the key figures in the mcu going forward you would imagine some dramatic scenes are going to rest on his shoulders yeah we know that he could carry the sort of action genre we've seen him do it in mando the last of us and so on and so forth so that's obvious in the good way but on the flip side of that coin to me, it just feels like very uninspired casting. And it feels like they might have swung out with their first top 10 choices and were like, all right, what's the safest bet we've got left? And if you're Pascal, you know, everyone has made that meme. He's collecting franchises like Infinity Stones, which like, if you're him, you know, it's like the Chris Pratt, but he's doing it better. Like he's taking on cooler, fu- <laughs> like he's taking on cooler fucking parts. So yeah. for him, it's a no brainer. I don't, I don't, um, besmirch him for taking on the role and i think he's a great pick but at the same time it does kind of feel like a grilled chicken and white rice kind of choice yeah he's kind of playing catch-up in a way right because his career blew up way after his quote-unquote prime right Right. he he probably didn't become an a-lister till he was past 40 yeah i mean game of thrones was like the first time people really took notice of him and that was you you know Game of Thrones better than I do. What what year was that when that was, he was that on? Was season four. So I think it's I think that show started in 2011. So that's yeah, 15 ish. Okay. So I mean, within the last eight years, he became really popular. And I mean, has... his rise is one of I think the best stories that there's been. In. Oh, absolutely. Like just a perfectly charted kind of boop 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 boop. Yeah, and it, I I think no matter who they chose. 
uh and of course it's gonna be really funny if this somehow does fall apart where like they're like he can't like there was some complication with the last of us or something and if he can't do fantastic four it'd be crazy but no matter who they did choose i think it was always gonna be uninspired right because you need like this almost like populist casting because um in in some ways i i think reed richards will be the new tony stark of the mcu for a little while you know because he is the smartest man in the universe to some extent and um is at the center of a lot of these conflicts that they seem to be striving for um so you need someone you can naturally gravitate towards and i mean like every name in hollywood has been rumored for this role for the last like what when did they announce it's like five years ago four years ago probably um so every covid i think so yeah yeah, every white guy between the ages of 30 and 50 was rumored for this role. <laughs> so, like, and, and and he's not even white, so that's not right. even true. <laughs> so, um, it, it's it's really, you know, you could go so many different ways. Um, I, I do think what you said was interesting. You said the right age, which a lot of people seem to be disagreeing with you on since he's 49. I think he's 48. 48. He's turned 49, will be 50 when the movie comes out. And um but a lot of people are like uh he's a he he's a young 48 he hasn't yeah it's not like he's been famous for 20 years absolutely and Um, you know he's got a bit of gray in the beard but you could dye that shit out i I mean uh, that's mr Fantastic's look right is exactly the the salt and pepper kind of look yeah and i feel like you know I, i the whole conceit as far as i understand is that they've been around in the mcu for a while that's been the rumor, yeah. right? That they might have been lost in time or whatever. For him to be, as you said, the new Tony Stark, the new sort of, uh, I feel like Sun is too, like, you know, like the Sun, the thing that he's the, mm, earth, the thing that like sure. the planets go around. I feel like that's almost too big of a word. But the MCU needs that now, right? You know, mm-hmm. Steve, uh, Cap is gone. Stark is gone. Tom Holland. There's no guiding him. star, right? Huh? There's no guiding star. Yeah, kind of I thing. don't think Tom Holland, I think he's a, fun decent good guy i don't think he's got the juice i just think that that's kind of what we're staring down the barrel of these days cumberbatch is good but he's a bit both him and his character are are a bit too prickly to be sort of that that moral and emotional and intellectual heart pascal has all that shit built in the audience has such a familiarity with his fatherly vibe that this guy being dropped in as the he's the smartest most caring guy in the mcu i'm like well of course Mm -hmm. yeah it's i think it's good casting and i i I will be interested to see the route they take because like you said there's a lot of different ways they can approach the fantastic for this time around it does not seem like they're going to be doing the straight up they go to space they have some chaotic thing happen to them and they they get they get their powers it seems like they've always existed i mean did you see the marvels no you know what happens at the end yeah yes um so i mean it's spoiler i don't care about fine now it's fine none of you saw this no one saw this movie it bombed so you had your chance (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) at the end of the movie um uh captain rambo gets like shot into a different like universe as they're like merging together and she has to like close it so they don't like collide with each other and when she wakes up she's greeted by beast from the x-men and it seems to be it's kelsey Grammer's beast so it appears to possibly be some sort of at least offshoot of the one x-men that we do kind of know um so 
what I think is that's how they introduced the Fantastic Four. It's another universe that collides and see like in the next year or two, and that's how you get it. I mean, Deadpool is all about this clashing of universes, right? This new one that they're doing seems to be the rumor is they're going through the Fox universe, killing all these characters, whatnot. Universes will collide. That movie seems like it has bigger implications for the rest of the MCU than maybe we had previously thought of. Um, and I think that's kind of where you'll start to see the Fantastic Four start to slide their way in uh, in some capacity. And like you said, already be introduced. I think if they went sort of the variant route, though, they mm-hmm. would have to explain why there is no version of them that we've seen so far. And maybe that's where the they were back in the 60s thing comes in. Yeah, there's all um, sorts of different ways you can do it. Which, to be honest doesn't concern me i don't care how the fuck they're working at all yeah just bring them in (laughs) yeah all right next big casting nicholas holt as lex luther in superman legacy and the dcu at large holt of course famously lost out on the role of bet he was top two for the batman lost out to robert pattinson he was top three for the role of clark kent lost out to david corn sweat this to me is inspired casting because he's not somebody that you would look like and be like well that's lex but i think if you look at his body of work so far sneakily a blockbuster performer but also kind of diverse as well like if you Mm -hmm. you know you forget that he kind of blew on the scene blew up on the scene with mad max and he spent the last three years on the great that is basically as disparate of roles that you could yeah, and then in between that, he's doing like the A-lister X-Men and Renfield type thing. And the so menu. I, the menu, which I think I think changed the way a lot of people saw him. Because I don't think that people... I, being a rich white guy, I don't think it's that hard to play a rich white douche. Uh, sure. I <laughs> spoke to him. He didn't seem like he was a rich white douche at all. But I'm sure he's met plenty of them in his life. But I do think that that po- portrayed him in a more dramatic light that people had previously thought of him mm-hmm. as um, I think the whole meta narrative of him having genuine jealousy of Superman Clark Kent is like unbelievable. And I wonder if that factored into Gunn's choice or not, because that like, that is so on the nose that if you planned it out that way, it'd be like, all right, dude, chill. But the fact mm-hmm. that it's like kind of unfolded like that, it's fascinating. So I, you know, I think that the cast is shaping out to be super, super promising. Yeah, I, I think we had said when we had heard kind of he may have like been asked to read for Lex. And he's like, no, I want Superman. I think that's how the story went at the time. And Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm glad that he it seems like it probably came down to him having to come to his senses and be like, do I really want to lose out on this entire project because I'm not the superhero? And realizing he has the guns to actually do the villain role, especially one like this, I think is really smart. You had written something right about Bradley Cooper was approached, right? That's what rumor, rumor, THR rumor, said. Rumor, huh? Is that what THR said? Or no, I, I can't remember. I, mean, I skimmed your article. Been, um, that might have been. I don't even want to say his name on the pod. Okay, <laughs> God, fucking nuts. 
I think I just think Bradley Cooper would have been an awesome choice. It seems like this cast is skewing younger though. So like maybe he would have felt out of place. I don't know what James Gunn's interpretation of Lex Luthor looks like. He's really good friends with Michael Rosenbaum, who oh, played yeah, Lex Luthor. I can't stand that fucking Oh, movie. all right, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, Gunn's really uh good friends with Michael Rosenbaum, who played Lex Luthor in the Smallville show, oh, which yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched that, but no. it's, it's really good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's really good in it. Um, and so I, I would be down for that kind of dynamic because the way Lex is portrayed, at least at the start of that show, is he's trying to be friends with Clark. He knows there's something fucking weird about him and he can't put his finger on it, but he wants to be friends with him. And maybe he has ulterior motives. You don't know. There's something like he's always there trying to be like his best friend and give him Porsches and stuff. And Clark and his dad are like, you don't have to do that, Lex. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. can just be friends. Um, it's, is that, really- is that the main canon that they grow up together? Like I, I, I not... don't think so. No, yeah, Smallville not... puts a lot of, you know, cause they're trying to make it right. Three, four seasons about him in high school and then moving yeah, on yeah. to his yeah. adult life. But um yeah, there's a lot of different ways to approach this character, and I'm excited for Holt's interpretation of it because he does have that look that's a little more uh, evil. He doesn't look heroic, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested to see what he looks like with a bald head. I'm interested to see what he looks. I mean, I think you said it. You just look at Mad Max; it's right there, Fury Road. He's he's got that look kind of to a to a degree. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting casting. I'm excited to see the Perry White casting that was apparently like going around what their type is a I saw, black guy in his 50s I, saw, or I, I, I saw a meme today that they should cast uh Stephen A. Smith yeah that'd be awesome I'd be that'd down be for awesome. it that'd be, awesome. that'd be so good um something that I thought of about this as well is that this is going to be back-to-back Lexes that are g- going to be young of course the last time we saw him was uh Jesse Eisenberg who I believe was around the same age However, mm-hmm. Zack Snyder, for as much as I, there is a lot in BBS that I like, Lex undoes the whole bad. thing. It's bad. It, it, yeah. it is, it is just, uh, it's like a fucking disease in the center of the film. Nobody is reclaiming up. that version of Lex, right? A lot of people have gone back and been like, you know what, this actually worked, but nobody's touching that and being like, you know what, yeah. good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I am looking forward to see the interpretation of him being a younger man but being the more traditional Lex that we know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, next up, what do we got? We have both seen the Hunger Games prequel. Mm-hmm. General vague thoughts. So I had gone into it, and because uh, I really like Francis Lawrence's work, despite the fact that I had never seen a Hunger Games film. I think Constantine is great. I think I Am Legend is great. So I was stoked to talk to him. So I went to see this film. But when I found out it was two hours and 45 minutes long, I was literally dreading it all day. I was like, this fucking sucks. This sucks. This sucks. I was not excited at all. I felt the same way. And I like those kinds of movies. I like longer movies, but I was like. For a fucking franchise prequel, it's like. Yeah. Fucking high horse. (laughs) What what are we doing here? It's interesting, though, because Francis told me he was like, well, when I split the third film into two parts the last time, everyone was pissed off. And now people are saying that he should have done that now. But we'll get to that in a bit. So I'm sitting there, like, going into this film, basically annoyed that I have to be there. Which is not something that I probably should say out loud. But, like, that is the nature of all work. Some days you want to be there, some days you don't. It was a Monday. But then I 
fucking enjoyed it. I thought I was like surprised by how violent it was, which I guess is sort of a staple of these films, which good for them. That's a nice little niche that they have. Uh, the performances I thought were all good. The sets, the world building, the soundtrack. I have literally been playing basically nonstop since I saw it. Zegler, movie star, all that. But then your complaints and mine and the general publics have largely been the same. And that's kind of the third act. Derails because it gets away from what is the Hunger Games, right? The game's mm -hmm. end. And that is basically when, when the third act starts. While I didn't enjoy it, I understand why it had to be there. They're mm -hmm. following the story of a book. The book is telling the story of how this guy came up to be. His... I told Francis, I was like, I didn't realize that this was the bad guy until like two hours in. Until, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, when he uses the bird to record his boy, yeah. I was so confused. Because mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, I thought this guy was the hero. This is evil as shit. What is mm -hmm. going on right now? So like, I found that to be super effective. So like, I understand the character through lines that they had to play out in that third act. Unfortunately, because of that, they just had to stretch the plot a little too far. Yeah. But I'd say all in all, like a generally and genuinely surprisingly enjoyable film. Yeah, I was, I used the word riveted by the like first hour and a half, two hours. Big word. Yeah, I was really enthralled. And it's like, I went in with low expectations not because i don't love the hunger games but i was like i don't know are they just bringing it all back because that's the thing to do and um i didn't really know much about the book itself other than the general plot and as soon as i got in there and i realized it was more about snow than the zegler character i was like oh wait this is actually really interesting and i was trying to figure out so as i was went watching, in knowing that it was going to be about the bad guy yeah okay but i was and that to, to some degree this may be why i didn't resonate so much with some other people because some people really do like it but the third act of being like i was expecting the entire time to see the through line from this version of the character to the president snow i know later on and i didn't see it ever right. Right. and i was like what's going on how are you going to get me to like not turn on this guy but see the turn in him and it just never quite came in a way that felt organic when it does happen it's so late that I was like, uh, I don't think you're going to pull this off. And <clears throat> apparently in the book, he has an internal monologue. So you kind of always know what he's thinking, what he's doing, how he's feeling. And that being missing, particularly from the third act of this movie, I think really fucking hurts it. Mm. Because especially in those last few minutes, um, he is doing some things that I was like, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why anyone is acting the way they are right now. I'm really confused by all of your motivations and nobody's expressing what you're doing to the point of me feeling like I, I missed something like something was cut out and I didn't understand it. And so not having that, I think actively damages the, the movie. And it's so frustrating when I felt so excited by everything that was happening before it, that the fact that it just kind of tumbles its way into a landing, it really disappointed me in that sense. Like the movie is good, but the ending is just so not <laughs> that it really kind of damages everything that comes before it. To be honest, I can't even recall how it ends. You want me to tell you? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, him and Lucy Gray run they away together up in the forest i know yeah. that and then and then and then goes back to yeah and then he goes back to the capital because they're like oh you oh, like let it out. 
kills Dinklage. And that's the ending? Yeah, and it kind of, he like goes and he looks at this big statue out in the square and it kind of is like, I'm going to be powerful, kind of, right? Like, right. I was like, all right, I And suppose. like killing people with poison is his thing in the, in the. Yeah, yeah. Have you not watched the other ones yet? I've watched the first two. Okay, great. Um, I, I think what you, what you said is interesting though about like it moving away from the Hunger Games and the the last act is kind of like the inverse of the first mm, two, right? Because right. those movies take a long time to build up to the Hunger Games, but it almost works in their favor in well, those movies. Of course, I mean that's the whole fucking thing. Yeah. You went to go see to bring up Batman versus Superman. You went to go see that movie for that fight. If you put mm-hmm. that in in the first act. You're going to spend the next two hours being like, what the fuck am I doing here? Right. So that's kind of, you know. But, you know, some filmmakers want to be like, you're here for the Hunger Games? We'll get right into it. But, like, they're like, we're going to build out this world. We're going to build the suspense. We're going to show you how scary these fucking people are. We're going to really drive in the tension. And it works. It's very effective. It's very unsettling. And you you feel the, the stress and the dangers and the... Um, uniqueness of this world and they do a great job of all of that in this movie too it's just what doing the kind of inverse like i said and doing it afterwards almost deflates it you're like all right where are we going you're like oh shit i can't believe there's more yeah pretty much you're like wait what (laughs) it's an an entire act and they tell you confusing on screen there are titles cards that say part one part two part three and that's how you know it's it's act based and you're like Oh wow, there's a lot left in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. You you've seen the Marvels, you've seen Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. you've seen the killer. Um uh, let me just say quick, uh, if you've not checked out Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix, mm-hmm. have you heard of this or seen this no. yet? Mm-hmm. Uh it's basically like I wanna say an anime, but realistic, like what's always kind of intimidated me about anime is kind of how massive the sort of lore and genuinely outrageous some of the plot trappings can be you know like i know that (laughs) one piece like he's a pirate or something like you know i I can't keep up with it either it's too much for me but this (laughs) is basically just like an animated samurai story from the writer of uh blade runner 2049 and logan and his wife who is a Japanese woman is involved too. It's I think uh-huh. it's like eight parts. It's fucking phenomenal. So okay. that's what I've watched these last few weeks. You've seen Thanksgiving. You've seen the Marvels. Take uh you know three to five to talk about either one that you want. Um, fuck the Marvels. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll I'll talk about uh, uh Thanksgiving because it was the surprise movie of uh, the fall for me so far at least. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's Basically, what happens is the inciting incident is um, this kind of like Walmart knockoff has a big Black Friday sale that starts on Thanksgiving night. And so there are all these crowds line up outside. The security has been like there's very minimal security because of costs. They're trying to save money. So uh, all these crowds break into the store and they kill each other for these goods. And then the rest of the movie is like the people who are responsible are being targeted by someone in the town oh. who's wearing like a pilgrim costume and is killing them in Thanksgiving ways. And it's very tongue in cheek. It's very much in the vein of six like, scream kind of without being super smug. It's just like so much fun. It's very earnest. And Patrick Dempsey has the worst Boston accent I've ever heard, but you can tell it's kind of on purpose. <laughs> and it's like, 
everyone is knows what they're in on and the kills are so much fun they're so gory but like to the point where it's like it's not even gross it's just like so silly right um it's it's genuinely one of the best horror movies I've seen this year. It's yeah. Is it gonna become a thing? Like, could this be the next kind of franchise? You think? I'm hoping so. It didn't make a ton of money because it came out the same weekend as uh, the Hunger Games, you know, and it's R-rated and and whatnot. Um, it's, okay. it's but super niche. It's based on a trail, like a fake trail. Yeah, movie <laughs> yeah, yeah. Years old. So you know, but it, I think it was shot on a fairly low budget. So you know, if it doesn't make money in theaters, it'll it'll make it back on streaming and whatnot. But it's they kind of set it up for possibly to come back for more, and I hope uh-huh. they do because genuinely, it is a total blast. And you know, this is going to come out on Thanksgiving. Go see it this weekend. Good. It's, it's very much fall vibes, very cozy. And this is such a weird thing. It is the first movie in so long that I feel like there are real people on real locations, like big crowds doing stuff. Right. When, when they're out in the, the town on Black Friday, I'm like, that feels like real people at a real yeah. store. <laughs> it's crazy how That's much awesome. that, that adds to film these days where it's just like yeah oh, this is really happening <laughs> it's an atmosphere right yeah, and that's yeah. that's what i want so uh go check it out I, I if you like horror if you don't even like horror i think it's just a fun like kind of like black comedy that i think a lot of people can get behind and then finally the last big release in the last few weeks was david fincher's the killer i've seen i've watched it three times um <laughs> you know it's just fucking fincher boiled down to his purest most uncut form the fight scene in Florida? Is it Florida? I believe with, so. With the brute is one yeah. of the best fight scenes I've seen in literally years. Um, it reminded me of the fight scene in Barry, if the <laughs> one from Barry just wasn't funny at all. It was like super fucking serious. And the way that like Fincher, the way that Fincher is speaking about the narrative on himself, both the work he's done, the films he's made and skewering it but also still elevating it at the same time like he's making fun of himself i think not making fun of himself but making fun of sort of the cult that is formed around these films like he his whole point in this is that this sick slick hitman actually kind of fucking sucks at his job you morons um but to like he's literally me (laughs) but like to do that but still like make a fucking super cool assassin revenge hitman film this is you know i think i like this more than gone girl um i like this girl i like this more with more than the girl with the dragon tattoo so with that being said, this is my favorite film of his in at least 10 years. That's crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't quite put it as high as those two, maybe. But I mean, like everything he does, I just fucking gush over. So, oh, and I, Mank, I, of course. How dare I forget Mank? Definitely better than Mank, I would say. Uh, that's You've a seen rare. Mank? Yeah, rare wow, miss. Good for you. Good for you. But still not the Matrix 2. Yeah. Unfortunately, I got time for Mank, but not Matrix What are you doing this week, bro? <laughs> I... I'll find time. I'll find time. <laughs> Same as since what? When one of the resurrections come out? That was like 2021, I think. 2021, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. When they make Matrix 5, <laughs> I'll fucking see the Matrix 2. Yeah. Um, we'll yeah, be in that one. We'll, we'll yeah. be starring on ourselves. <laughs> Literally in the Matrix. Um, yeah, the, the killer is just such a blast. And like, um, I saw it in a, in a theater. And so the fucking sound was so good. It was so well optimized. I mean, he's great sound. Like everything he does with sound is so great all the time. But um, there's just 
everything about the movie, even like little things, like the, there's this camera shake that is oh. done in post production. It's like not done in camera, ah. but it has this weird sense of like you can kind of tell there's feel something the not right about it. What's that? Oh, I, I feel like it makes you feel like you could feel the hits more. Yeah, I think so. And it also creates a sense of like unease, like almost like his world is rattling, right? Yes. Like yeah. there's something very smart like about he takes that fucking uppercut right to the shit. <laughs> yeah. It's like whoa. <laughs> Everything about that fight scene had me losing my mind too. I mean, like just he knows, especially he doesn't have that many actual like fight scenes in his mm. movies, really. Yeah. And so the fact that he can just come in and hit it with such a high level is especially in today's day and age where action is pretty, pretty high level, uh, you know, John wick and all these things. Um, especially even noting the fact he's very particular and does hundreds of takes. You got to imagine Michael Fassbender's body was fucked up by the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, shit. Right. um, but it, it's, it's done so seamlessly and so perfectly and brilliantly. Um, and I, I think that that's also another movie that has a really good tongue in cheek tone where every time he goes to an airport, he has a new fucking name. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, well, I love that. Those are all names of seventies sitcom stars. I did not. Yeah. There. So those <laughs> are like, uh, like one of them is Archie Bunker, who mm-hmm. is like, this just shows how, young we are <laughs> um i don't know wait give give me a second uh archie bunker is from all in the family so okay. like there were a, a, just a bunch of those that's super neat just like yeah. i love little things like that and uh the, it, the smith soundtrack is awesome too it's it's one of the best movies netflix has put out i don't think they've marketed it well enough i'm not sure this is reaching more casual audiences which really sucks but David Fincher seems to be getting blank checks from them anyways because he did House of Cards and kickstarted their whole fucking thing. Yeah. He's indebted to, or they're indebted to him forever. I, and I hope they remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we can keep getting more bangers like this. And I hope he doesn't take another like 10 fucking years to make another uh-huh. actual movie. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he would be down for a The Killer 2. Like a, he didn't Fuck shut yeah. it down. So and it's based on a uh, graphic novel as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I, apparently he's talked with Sorkin about the social network too. Which, I've um, seen that as well. I'm I know that, in that too. Uh, Fuck something. yeah! All right, let's take a quick break. We're gonna swing over to in the interview I have with Sean Levy and then Joel Kinnaman. Folks, today I am joined by Sean Levy, director of Night at the Museum, Free Guy, Deadpool 3. Poor guy has had to talk about it throughout every hole in his body for the last few weeks. Uh, And his new Netflix series, All the Light You Cannot See, which releases on November 2nd. What's going on today, Sean? Hey, man, you must be special because you got a long slot for this interview. Well, you and I have spoke before, so I, 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 you have spoke to tons of folks like me, so I don't blame you if you. No, do but not where recall. are we going first? Which of these titles? <laughs> the one that you are here to promote, sir. I promise. Love it. I, I you know, this is a team game here. Um, the last time, well, actually, the last time I spoke to you, I asked you if you would want to uh, direct Deadpool three about a day or two before the news came out. So thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> Maybe it was your idea. Maybe it was you who put this into the universe. And here I am halfway through making Deadpool. Well, 
I was thrilled to hear it at the time. But the last time we did talk, we talked about how empathy is a common theme in your work. And that is basically the thesis of the phrase, all the light we cannot see, is that it's there even when humanity is at its worst. Unfortunately, World War II was almost 100 years ago, and we barely, if at all, seem to learn. How do you personally process what this story is trying to tell us in today's world? Yeah, I mean, look, this story was always resonant to me. It's a fictional story set in a real war, World War II. But then to be shooting it in Hungary when Russia was invading Ukraine and to get this kind of this reminder of, oh man, these are not historic lessons that need to be learned. These are present day. These are reminders. And now to be here in the fall of 2023, releasing the show yet again, confronted with shit. Like we just, as a human race, we, maybe we progress in some areas, but there's lessons we don't learn. And the truth is that you can't wave a wand and make the world suddenly without hate and suffused with empathy. But this story is about the power of individual empathy, individual humanism, and how you need to protect that. You need to protect that in the face of a world that feels really kind of relentlessly dark sometimes. You need to believe in the light we cannot see. And right now, I know a lot of us see a lot of dark things around us. And, uh, and so the, the themes and messages of this show are, uh, I'm, I did not anticipate it how timely it would be. Once I saw that you were attached to this, I went out and bought myself the book because just from the work that you've done and the story being told in this, I could see in my mind's eye how those two things would meet. Um, introducing Reinhold Van Rumpel. Von Ru- all, we'll just say speak- Von Rumpel. It rolls off the tongue easier. Von Rumpel. Thank you. <laughs> uh, first of all, beautifully and hauntingly staged with the city on flames and the leaflets falling for the sky. Love that. The actor who plays him, Lars Edinger, is fantastic. But I would be remiss if I didn't note that the scene obviously reminded me of another time that we were introduced to a terrifying Nazi villain as he menacingly sat at a table and drank. And that is, of course, in Glorious Bastards. Now, is that, I have yet to read the book. Is that how the character is introduced in the book? And how did you go about paying homage to that scene while also trying to do your own thing? Yeah, so scenes not in the book. The character of Von Rumpel is the villain of the book as he is the villain of the show. But Stephen Knight, who created and wrote every episode of Peaky Blinders, among other phenomenal work, Steve wrote this character introduction scene. And while it's not an exact homage to Inglorious Bastards because it's not the opening scene of the show, uh, it is the introductory scene to Von Rumpel. And I think that, look, Inglorious is one of Tarantino's best. I've seen it many, many times, uh, as have all of us as movie nerds. But I feel like really the lesson of Inglorious Bastards and that Christoph Waltz performance, just like Schindler's List and the performance of Ray Fiennes, is listen, there's only so much new that you can say about the Nazis. They are evil. What they did is unimaginably evil. The way that they legitimized hatred of the other is detestable. If you're asking an actor to portray a lead role who is a Nazi, you're looking for what are the shadings? What are the dimensions 
other than evil because playing mm. an evil character with pure evil is a boring performance. And so what Waltz did, what Ray Fiennes did, what Lars Eidinger does in All the Light We Cannot See is to find weird and, and unsettling charisma, humor, charm. These are kind of oblique angles into a character that come together to make for a more interesting performance. And I think Lars does that big time. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, you know, uh, I, I've watched the whole show a, a week or so ago, but that's the scene that's just been going over. Can I over give a shout just... out? I know, I know, I don't, I, I don't want to step on toes. So I'll tell it quick. I have Adam driver to thank for the discovery of Lars Eidinger. Adam and I did a movie like a decade ago called this is where I leave you. And we've been friends Love ever that movie. since. So I called driver and I'm like, do you want to do all light we cannot see with me? Or have you already done the villain thing with Kylo Ren? And Driver says, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But I'm working with this dude on White Noise, this new Noah Baumbach movie. And there is this Ooh. German actor who no one's ever heard of over here. But this dude's the shit. You need to read him and meet him immediately. So based on just that, Adam Driver giving me the tip on Lars Eidinger, I called up Lars. He read one scene within three lines. I knew he was the guy because he is so watchable. I, I want to touch on what you said about him. Obviously, the rage and the uh, evil in him is sort of what you expect. But the sadness in the soul of his eyes wow. is... Thank you. I, that thrills me. And it will thrill Lars to hear that you felt that. Because at the end of the day... This is not your typical Nazi villain. He's not trying to kill Jewish people. He's not trying to, you know, to execute uh, genocide. He is looking for a stone that he believes has a mythological power to save him from a terminal disease. And I, you know, I've not read the book, but I want to push back on that a bit to the extent where I don't know if he really in his heart of hearts believes that it can cure him but more so it's giving him something to hold on to and something in the failing days of the war to continue his sort of death march that um, is this a is really really interesting interpretation and you know what who's to say i do know this it's a really uh, resonant idea because sometimes what people need to survive is is hope a, is is a hope for something to achieve and the goal itself might not be the thing. It's the road to the goal that is the engine that keeps you living. Exactly. Keeps you moving forward. That's a very interesting interpretation. Whether you're good or bad. Uh, yes, all right. Precisely. So something that fascinated me in this story was the idea of all information coming from one place. Radio. Now we live in the opposite world of that where information right and wrong comes from everywhere. I'm curious which you think is more dangerous and why i've always felt that you could take everything this show says about radio you could substitute the word radio for social media and it mm. is the same pattern it is a new technology as radio was back in the 30s that is an incredible tool of connection but also misinformation and we see the same thing happening right now. Social media can be incredible. It can make us feel less alone in the world. It can be an exchange of ideas wherever you are in the world. But it can also be a conduit for hateful, propagandistic, uh, damaging 
points of view. And so just like radio, I feel like there's this technology that we haven't fully mastered. And it's as much a tool for bad as it is for good. So we went a bit off track here. So, but I do still want to give you, I want you to uh, uh, just, just tell me whatever you want to tell me about Aria Mia Liberty. Go ahead. I wanted to cast this blind protagonist with someone who is herself blind. So I did an open casting call. I found a seven-year-old named Nell Sutton and a graduate student, 20-something named Aria Mia Liberti. Unbelievable. A Fulbright scholar getting her PhD in rhetoric at Penn State. Both of these girls had never acted before. Aria had never even auditioned before because she grew up in a world that she felt made very clear to her overtly and through media and representation. You know what? Being an actor, that's not really on the table for you. Some goals are not achievable. And so she internalized it. She became an incredibly successful academic. When I saw her audition, one of, of over a thousand, she wasn't even in command of what she was doing. Her performance was pretty good, but not perfect. What she had was intelligence, strength, and a fierce presence that I knew I could work with. And that would be the bedrock of this heroic character. So as I touched on on the top, you have been getting peppered with Deadpool 3 stuff over the last few weeks. So I'm going to try to change stuff up for you. Is there anything that you want to ask me about the film? (laughs) What do people want out of this historic pairing of Wolverine (laughs) and Deadpool? Please tell me. You actually actually touched on something that I was going to ask you. I have a Logan tattoo. This film touched me. But I'm not seeing the design, bro. I feel like I need you closer to the camera. Don't worry, I wore sleeveless just for this. It's okay, got it. Yep, yep. With his claws. So, love it. Love, love that film to say. And I'm sure this is something a lot of fans want to hear is how are you going to remain respectful to that film? And can you speak to the importance of that to you, you and Hugh? I have always said I can't wait for Deadpool 3 to come out because all I want to do is give interviews alongside Ryan where we talk about our reverence for the movie Logan. And Mm, one reason, you remember when we told the world about this movie and about Hugh being in it, we had two videos. One of them was Ryan asking Hugh if he wanted to be in the movie and Hugh's walking by in the background going upstairs. But then we released a second video where we say to the world, because we knew this would be a question, Logan is canon. We love Logan. That happened. And then we end up playing a Wham! song while they describe what actually happens in our movie. So I'm not going to tell you more, but I do want the world to know, as the producer, director of Deadpool 3, all of us share this deep love and respect for Logan, every aspect of how it's crafted, and all the events that take place. Okay. Sean, thank you so much for the time. You're being saved by the bell for the thing I've got for Star Wars. But your tattoo wins the day. Your tattoo wins. (laughs) I I always have a blast when we chat, man. You're just such a great guy. And I I root for you every time your name pops up. And I I cannot wait for our third talk. Thank you. Nice chatting with you, you. man. Love your energy.
Folks, today I am joined by Joel Kinnaman, an actor you know from projects such as The Killing for All Mankind, The Suicide Squad, and his new film, Silent Night, which hits theaters on December 1st. Congrats on the film, man. Thank you so much. Starring in a John Woo film is obviously very physically taxing, right? You're kicking ass, you're getting your ass kicked. But what I found myself most drawn to is how demanding of a performance it is in terms of how you have to act because one of your main tools, your voice has been stripped from you. How did you go about preparing yourself? Like, did you look in the mirror and practice faces? And and was was this challenge something that drew you to this? Yeah, it was it was central to it. I mean, I, I was, of course, uh, felt very honored that, that John wanted to, to do this film with me. But then the, the fact that it is in some ways an experimental film, you know, it's it's a fast paced, hard boiled action movie. But because there is no dialogue in it, you know, it's an it's an artistic risk that, that everyone involved with this is taking. You know, I, I was really excited about that. It 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 uh it was a, it was a great challenge. And um I mean, there was a lot of different ways where I was preparing for it. I, you know, I was watching all these old like Buster Keaton and silent, you know, people that are just, uh, you know, performing through their expressions. I was watching Les Samurai, this old Melville movie. But, um, you know, I had some friends that were uh, they were joking around. They're like, so I guess we'd be hanging out now, you know, during this, during this shooting of this film because you won't have to go home and learn your lines. And I was like... <laughs> gonna be a lot of work on this one anyways it's not just about that and uh and i learned really quickly that uh it was actually more demanding quite a bit more demanding i i I think that many um you know many scenes you 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 actually use the dialogue to propel you emotionally into the scene and then it's you can also hide a little bit you know you in a scene you have an emotional connection uh, you know, you have a little bit of emotion in it and and then, you know, but then you also use your voice to, you know, to portray the, the emotion of that feeling. And the bad version of that is, you know, what I call sort of American whisper acting. You see it a lot on TV where it's like, you know, guys are like, I'm never going to let you get away with this, man. I'm going to I'm going to fucking kill you, man. And it's 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 it, it sounds OK, but it's bullshit. You know, it's like there's no real emotion behind that. It's just kind of modulating their voice but when you don't have any dialogue to portray the scene it's all in your eyes so i realized there's no hiding here so i had to act like a fucking psycho on this set and you know before every take i was like screaming crying throwing chairs i wrecked a lot of chairs on this movie um I had to find some ways to sort of lose control emotionally. So, so my eyes had that intensity. And then also it's, you know, these little facial movements, these micro movements in, in the face that, that only happens when you're really filled with emotion or deep in intense thought. So like my inner dialogue and my inner life, which is, you know, the basis of everything in acting. But then we have these other little layers where we can use our technique to sort of get away with not always being filled with the actual emotion of the scene. Um, you had to throw that away and it, it it all had to be there. So I was I ended up having to prepare for, you know, emotionally for most of the takes in this film in the way that I would normally, you know, just prepare for the most intense emotional scene of another movie. I want to make two points. One, it is a huge risk, but one of the core tenets of film is show, don't tell. 
right? So this is like the ultimate version of that. Second, yeah. I, I want to say that scene of you staring at yourself in uh, the mirror, screaming, but no voice coming out is one of the most stark expressions of pain I've ever seen in a film, man. So that that was that was that. A plus Thank stuff. You. Um, What I liked about this film was that unlike most revenge films, your character does not have a set of skills that makes you a nightmare. You had yeah. to learn those skills in the film. So I'm curious, and I know that you had to go through tons of training before you even started shooting. Did having to learn these skills alongside your character further help you understand his commitment and mindset? Yeah, I think so, you know. Um, but, it, but it's also because, you know, I've been doing action movies for a few years and, and it's something I enjoy. And, and then also over the course of years, I, I picked up, you know, some of the things that we learned for a film, I actually realized that, oh, I fucking love this. Like jujitsu has become one of my passions in life, and um, and also you know some you know Muay Thai and shooting guns and uh, you know so, so these are things that I've been working on for years, and and so you build up uh, you know decent amount of skills. So what, what I realized was that I am actually a little more technically proficient in these areas than what Godluck would be, and um, so the idea behind how we were going to make the action in this movie really exciting was, you know, it's not going to be flashy that it's the opposite of that. We're going to make it really gritty, dirty, ugly, and messy, you know, that, and, you know, frenetic and try to capture the feeling that, that actually happens in a fight. If anyone has been in a fight, they know, they know that like how time warps and, and the communication between two people during three seconds uh, can actually it feels like 15 minutes you know it's like in, if you're in, ever been in a car crash it's the same thing this perception of time just changes and it's and it, I thought it was really fascinating to try to capture that so what, what what we did was there was like two lanes where we tried to figure this out and um we tried to like tell this one of it one of the the parts was having me do all the ugly you know the ugly action like falling in stairs taking wrecks you know like getting thrown on the ground and 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 also designing the action the fights so i could do it all you had brought up what an honor it was to hear that john woo wanted to work with you on this film but i'm curious like what your reaction was like it's a john woo film but it's something that you've never done before, something that most people have not done. So walk me through like the realization of that, that yes, you're going to be working in a John Woo film, but it is a very unique and specific type. No, I mean, that, that was uh, that was an epic part of, of, of this movie to like, get to, you know, dive into that kind of a challenge with an OG master of the action genre like John, you know, it was it, it was it was pretty epic. Um, What's one piece of filmmaking knowledge that you hope to keep from your time with John Woo as you go forth in your career? I mean, it's it's the levels of the game when it comes to visual storytelling. I mean, it's like, um, you know, because, you know, the the scenes, the, mainly the dramatic scenes where, you know, the, the where we're telling the, the story of the family tragedy, because we don't, we, we don't, we don't have any dialogue. We don't have to film the person that's talking. We don't have to cut to the person that's listening. John could just tell the story of that scene by designing one beautiful shot. 
and and to see him in action and, and see like how you tell a story visually with the camera, how you move it, where you place it, where you zoom in, that was really fascinating. I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to go back to what we were talking about before. It was uh, it was uh, it was doing the Rex in the film, and then what was that? Why, why am I? Dude, I am ADD as hell, so like I am literally the worst person to to, to try to help with that. Oh, I, I, I will just say, though, this, this film, and, and this is probably the ultimate uh, praise that you could pay this type of film. I thought a lot of The Raid, because that is a very wordless yeah. film as well. And sort of the the scene where you have to go flight by flight was very raided. Yeah. So I thought that was awesome. Another thing that I found, for, and this is just me kind of talking now. I'm not, <laughs> this isn't a question. I found that John Woo... The main character in his frames are is the gun, I find. And that, yeah. to me, is so compelling because it's like he knows that that's where our eyes go. Uh, yeah. I, I've got to wrap soon, so I just want to ask you two quick ones that don't have to do with this film. Now that James Gunn is in charge of DC, are you kind of like James, man? What the fuck? Did you really have to kill me off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but I love that scene, though. You know, it was, uh, it was it such a really good, good way to go. So, But yeah, for sure. I, I, Maybe I'll come back and play some nasty villain in a couple of years. You know? There you go. And then finally, just real quick, For All Mankind is one of my favorite shows on TV. And what I found fascinating about that is you, it takes over such a place, takes place over such a long period of time that you and the character age together. What's that like? Yeah, it's like a unique challenge and opportunity to, to get to play a character over 40 years. You know, I, it, it's uh, it was one of the things that that really drew me to the project initially. And um, and now you know I, I we just we're just releasing uh, season four is streaming now on Apple TV. It, it was a bitch shooting it though. It was <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it was a bitch. The makeup chair, five and a half hours every morning in the makeup chair. I had like twelve thirty a.m. getups and uh, you know several times a week, and then spending you know 13 14 hours with a silicon mask and people always like picking in your face it's like it's pretty rough but um but it's but it's also very uh, it's a, it's a great acting challenge to get to play 30 years older you know and usually those kind of scenes are what you see in the epilogue of a movie you know it's a couple of days work but to get to play 72 for a whole season as a lead of the show it's a, it's a big challenge and and really fun it, it it's you know, playing old is one of those fun acting things. It's one of the hardest things you can do as an actor. So so it was, it's cool. Joel, congrats on the film. Silent Night hits theaters on December 1st. I think it is an awesome addition to this sort of man on revenge genre. And, not, and I, I, I want to congratulate you on the film and the year. For all mankind, this film. And then I just got done watching Sympathy for the Devil, which I thought was yeah. sick, man. So you're having a hell of a run this year. Congrats. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, man. Cheers, brother. Bye. All right. Thank you to Sean for joining me. That was a few weeks ago. That was for his new Netflix series, All the Light You Cannot See. Also, thanks to Joel. That was for his new film, Silent Night, which hits theaters on Friday, December 1st. Good time. You saw it? Yeah. I can't wait for that. It looks John awesome. John Woo. He's back. Been 20 He's years. always back. He's back. And uh, I hope you guys have a happy holiday or happy Thanksgiving because we will be talking to you before the holiday season. I promise you that. I know we've been hitting this with this podcast, but Cade, it's always great seeing you, pal. You too, buddy. All right, y'all. Talk to you later. Peace.